0: Good morning, everyone. It's the week after Easter, and we've got some events that were recorded in the uh, Bible that happened uh, exactly a week after Easter and the resurrection. Uh, On the first Sunday of this year, I was preaching here on the uh, transfiguration. Do you remember when Jesus took the inner core of his followers, his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the high mountain, and we... Uh, listen to what the scripture said. And, And then toward the end, you might recall that there was this verse here, that as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So that particular occasion when Jesus had appeared in his glory up on the mountaintop was to be a secret just for those three. Have you had secrets that you've had to keep for a long while? I think some secrets are hard to keep. Not because they're, you're excited about them, but, but because you're, you know the impact it could have. So I can remember uh, as a manager in a company where we were talking about the need to make some people redundant. And as a manager, I had to be aware of what was going on and and the consequences of that, how we might handle it. Now, I remember that particular occasion well, because we were actually able to swap somebody, lend somebody to another team until our revenues picked up. So we didn't have to do it. In fact, the next round of redundancies involved me being made redundant. So I didn't know about that one coming. But but it, it was tough, you know, having to keep that secret. And I can remember during the years when... Uh, I was the secretary here. There were, there, were quite a, uh, there were a handful of occasions when there was a secret, and, and Ken said to me, Ian, I need you to know. He, he needed um, just the one person he could talk to and say, this is what's going on, and I just need to bounce it off you and make you aware so that somebody else knows. And it wasn't very often. It was probably only two or three times, but there were times when, for six months, I couldn't say it to anybody else. And it was tough to keep a secret like that. Uh, and then, in, in business, sometimes, if you're involved in talking to uh, your uh, clients or your suppliers, there are trade secrets or there are commercial conditions and you can't talk about them with someone else. I've been in an interesting situation recently where, where I've been doing some work for, for, for a company um, up in Berkshire, and they are the fourth people in the chain, so I'm going through an agency who are going to a training company who are going to this client. And, and I'm not supposed to know what the ultimate client is paying, but neither is the uh, training company in London meant to know what I'm being paid. Uh, and it was great until I was on a three-way conversation and the client in, my, in, 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 um, in, in Berkshire said to the, uh, their supplier, and this is how much we're willing to pay. So I, I was suddenly in on a secret that I wasn't supposed to know. But you get you, you have secrets, commercial secrets sometimes, and then there are the, 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 the slightly more uh, fun secrets, but still difficult because um, if if you were to chat to Cindy, um, you, you'd know that actually the person she chats to more than anybody else is her sister, um, and her uh, sister Lisa is in Australia, which you know makes um, we're really glad for these sort of special international phone rates nowadays, and and they they, they chat a lot, but but about t- uh, three years ago. Um, I started plotting with Lisa uh, to, to take Cindy out to, to Australia uh, to see uh, her sister for a few weeks. Uh, and I, it wasn't just talking to Lisa about it, but also talking to uh, Cindy's um, boss about making sure we could get the time off, you know, more than two weeks at a time. And we put all this together over about six months before I could actually share that secret um, uh, with Cindy. It was great to be able to do it when, it when it actually happened. It was even better to be able to go. But you know, there are secrets that you're just excited about, and you'd love to be able to share with someone else, and you've got to hold it for a while, like the disciples did. In fact, um, what I'll be talking about this morning, it's just really difficult to, to, to justify putting a map on, so I thought I'd put one up <laughs> just here, just because I have a reputation to preserve. So... Let's uh, let's move to John chapter um, twenty. If you've got a church Bible, um, you'll you'll find this on page one thousand and eighty nine, and let's read about what happened, a little bit of it. What happened on Easter Sunday, and then then what happened a, a, a week later. So on page one thousand and eighty nine, um, I'll put it on screen, and we read from verse nineteen of John chapter 20, where it says this. And this is Easter day, this is the resurrection day. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, this chap Thomas, I think he's got a bit of a reputation in in history because the word doubting is so often put just in front of his name. In fact, not just is Thomas known across the centuries as Doubting Thomas. Sometimes, if somebody isn't believing us, we'll call them a, a Doubting Thomas. And it just seems that he's been pretty much maligned because we've only got three incidents where he, we, we learn a little bit about him. First of all, we know that he wasn't part of that inner circle. He was not one of those who'd been up the mountain with uh, Jesus for the transfiguration. So we know that he was um, not privy to that particular secret that the other three had been keeping for all that time. But then we know, too, that he, he was loyal. He was outspoken. He might even have been rather pessimistic. So, for example, in John chapter, um, chapter 11, just when we know that Lazarus was sick and was going to die and Jesus delayed approaching that situation, delayed traveling, what, what we discover is that um, the disciples weren't getting the message that, that Lazarus was dead. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So, you know, there was this sort of um, loyalty and perhaps this... Um, uh, almost fatalism involved in the way he was, and if without you, you, you might think that without John, one of the most famous statements of Jesus might not have happened, because Jesus had said in chapter fourteen of John's gospel, "Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God; believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms." If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And he goes on to say, um, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Well, what a brilliant introduction to Jesus' next statement. Jesus said, answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you see that without Thomas, we'd be missing that vital statement, which is so foundational to our understanding of Jesus and our faith and him being the route to heaven. But apart from that, then we come across this incident in the upper room over the course of the week. And that's our interaction with him. So we've got quite a limited amount of information. So he may have done outstanding things for the three years he was traveling with Jesus, but we build our picture of him on this particular event. And I wonder whether we are sometimes a little bit unfair in our criticism of him. I think he maybe he was a person who wore his heart on his sleeve. You know, Do you know people like that? You've probably got friends like that. You know, they, they don't hide what they're thinking or feeling. Uh, And um, I suspect that that was the situation. And, and, And for him, who was so dedicated to following Jesus, who was willing to follow him, yeah, let's go and we'll die too, his whole universe had collapsed with the crucifixion of Jesus. We could ask ourselves, well, why wasn't he with the other disciples that evening of the resurrection in that room where the disciples were in the room with locked doors because they were afraid of what the religious authorities would do if they found them as followers of Jesus? And we've got no answer. We could speculate. Maybe Thomas wanted time alone to process his grief. Maybe Thomas was out running errands because nobody else was brave enough to go out and get what they needed. We have no idea, but for one reason or another, he wasn't there. And Jesus appeared to all of them. And when Thomas returned and they told him what had happened, he didn't believe them. Now, we're all different, aren't we? I mean, I don't just mean in appearance, but often in personality as well. Um, I, I'm predisposed to cynicism in certain areas. I, I like to be sure and check out the facts. Now, I look at some of the postings that some people uh, put on Facebook, and they're obviously not, because they'll post en- repost anything, even though they, you know, any relationship to the facts or the truth is just coincidental. You know, I, so I, you know, I think, oh, I want to check this out before I do anything with it. But other times, I'm very much a sort of face value decision person. I, 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 perhaps I'm quite, perhaps like you, I'm a complex individual. The just can't be labeled in one way or another. And Thomas was probably different from some of the others. And I suspect that for many of us here, if we'd been the people to walk into that room later on, and people have been saying to us, we've seen the Lord, when Thomas knew full well that Jesus was dead and buried, we too may have been some of those people who would have struggled to believe what our friends were telling us. But I don't want to come down entirely in his favour because I want to sort of contrast what we see happening in these events. First of all, when Jesus came into the room, He said, peace be with you. Imagine how those disciples had been feeling that weekend after the uh, crucifixion of their Lord. We're told that the rooms were locked for fear of the authorities and Jesus comes in and offers them his peace. And let me tell you, there is no greater peace in all the world than the peace that Jesus can give. And so now, we've got a group here of ten disciples. Remember, Judas was no longer part of the group. We've got a group of ten who have seen Jesus, and they are astounded. They are amazed. They are excited. And Thomas walks into the room, and he hasn't been part of this. And they just want to convince him of the truth. We know... um, they told him, we've seen the Lord. And the the way that's expressed in the tense is, they kept on saying, but we've seen the Lord. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Don't you believe us? We've seen the Lord. And he said, no. I, unless I could put my finger into the palm prints, unless I could put my hand into his side, I will not, I will never believe. It's very interesting that what's happening here is that Thomas is laying down conditions for faith. He is lording it over the Lord here. He's telling Jesus just what Jesus has got to do, even though, of course, Jesus isn't in the room. And he was symptomatic of many of the Jewish people of that time. Because the thing that again and again they were asking for was, I want to see a sign. I want some miracle that is tailored just to me to prove that you, Jesus, are who you say you are. In fact, Jesus was quite critical of them when some of the religious leaders asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39. He he said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that, of course, was that as Jonah had been three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so too Jesus would be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. But then, a week later, exactly a week, the following Sunday. So that's what we're celebrating today, isn't it? A week after Easter. So what have you been doing this last week? What, what has this week been filled with, apart from chocolate? Okay. I know it's a week after Easter. My last piece of chocolate egg went yesterday. Very nice. What else has been going on? Because I don't know about you, but I, I can think of quite a few things that have happened in my life this week. And I imagine that during that week that the disciples were waiting that they weren't just sitting in a room staring at each other. Life had to go on. They must have been doing some things, but there would have been a lot of conversation. And all of that time, while they were having that conversation, there were ten of them who were still filled with excitement and anticipation because they'd seen Jesus. And then there was Thomas. How do you think he was feeling during that time? And then... Amazingly enough, in the same place, under the same conditions, Jesus reappeared with him there. The doors were locked. It was as if Jesus was just saying to Thomas, and see, Thomas, it was true. I can do this. I am here. I was here a week ago. Maybe if you'd been one of the other disciples, you would have loved to say, told you so. But of course, that wasn't the big issue. The big issue was Thomas and Jesus. And in this situation, Jesus virtually quotes Thomas back to him. Thomas, who had said when Jesus wasn't there, unless I see the nail prints his hat in his hand and put my fingers in there, unless I can see his side and put my arm in the spear wound in his side, I won't believe. Jesus, who wasn't there, offered those very opportunities to Thomas. But not until he'd said, peace be with you. We don't know whether Thomas did actually do the touching. It's not abundantly clear. But what we do see is that Jesus dealt with Thomas ever so gently. And he actually offered to Thomas what Thomas said he needed. It isn't unusual for people to go through times of doubt in their faith. Some of you might be going through a period of doubts right now. Perhaps if you were a believer in Sri Lanka this week, it's just been a real struggle to reconcile what you've just been through with what you believe. And it might be your own individual circumstances. You might be someone who's more predisposed to doubting. You might be a person who just overanalyzes everything and that just causes sometimes a bit of tension inside. But we've got a person here who Jesus met with and dealt with in a way to help him. And if you're struggling with doubt, do, do, do pray that Jesus would meet you at your point of need. But what a contrast we've got here between the Thomas of a week ago and the Thomas of today, now that Jesus has reappeared. Because his reaction in this situation is to say, my Lord and my God. Now, now we don't fully appreciate, I think, just how significant that was for a Jewish man to say that about another man who was standing next to him because the Jewish faith was a monotheistic faith. There was only one God. And Thomas uses two words here, both of which offer acknowledgement that Jesus is indeed God. He uses the word Lord, the Greek word Kyrios. He uses the word God, the word theos, both of which are saying, I acknowledge you as God. So instead of being that person who is wanting to lord it over the Lord by saying, these are the conditions of my faith, these are the rules I'm making before I'm willing to believe, now we've got a different Thomas who no longer wishes to be ruling supreme, but is bowing his knee to the real Lord, to the real King, to the real God, Jesus. It might be that you today are struggling a bit and and part of the issue is not so much doubts, it's about who's in charge, who is the king, who is the Lord. Let there be no doubt. We need to respond as Thomas did. My Lord and my God. Well, thankfully, we haven't just got this story. We've got two remaining verses in this passage. Sorry, one remaining verse in this passage, which I think is is really helpful to us. And, And it's helpful because it's a promise that we can write our name to. In verse 29 of John chapter 20, Jesus told Thomas, and I think he was being reasonably blunt here, because you have seen me, you've believed. But then he says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now that, that word blessed is a lot more than what you say if somebody sneezes. Okay? It, it, it's a word that means uh, comes from a, a word with a root of, of lengthened or, or enlarged, and, and it's, it's the idea that God has enlarged his, his blessing, that, that God has extended his benefits towards someone who is blessed, that God has given great mercy to someone. There is an, more than happiness. Happiness is, is so often um, subjective. Um, I'm happy because of happy circumstances, But the idea of being blessed is much more objective. It's a reality that if we are blessed by God, indeed, we have been the recipient of his goodness in so many ways. So if you were to take that verse 29, where it reads, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Does that include you? First of all, Have you seen the risen Jesus? I'm going to take a stab and say the answer is no. Is that reasonable? Okay. So then, let me ask you the question have you believed in him? Have you put your confidence, trust in him? Good. Good to see some nods. There's at least three people who are listening. That's brilliant. Okay. Then, you could rewrite this. Where it says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, put your name in there. Blessed am I, because I've not seen and yet have believed. It's a promise from Jesus. 2,000 years ago, that's very specific to us, who walk by faith and not by sight. And about 30 years after these events... One of the other authors in the Bible, the author of the letter to the Hebrew Christians, would write in chapter 11 of his book this. He says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So we've got this sort of almost like an extension, a little bit of an explanation about what this idea of faith is because where Jesus has said Um, talked about those who believe and Hebrews talks about faith it's the same root word if I believe I have faith and the author says faith is confidence in what we hope for we haven't seen it, we haven't got it but we know it's coming and it's the assurance about what we do not see And he goes on in this account in Hebrews chapter 1 to talk about some people who walked with God in the past who were people of faith, who trusted God. And in particular, toward the end of this short passage, he's talking about Enoch who God took, who didn't have a record of dying and being buried because God took him away. And we read in verse 5 that he was commended as one who pleased God. And then the author says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this idea of faith in the Bible, this idea of belief, it is more than just a philosophical belief. It's a reality for which we've got no material evidence. It gives us a genuine certainty. And the rules are this. In order to please God, we must first of all believe that he exists and Let me tell you, the Bible says, so do the demons believe he exists. But also, we must believe in God's moral character. That God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we want to move from being somebody who might be like Thomas, who needs that sign, who needs that physical evidence, to be the people that Jesus talks about, the people who are blessed because although they haven't seen, yet they believe. And a people who believe that God exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me encourage you this morning that God is in the business of blessing those who come to him. That God is in the business of rewarding those who place their confident trust in him that God is in the business of meeting people where they're at, like he did Thomas, and, and, and suddenly it's as if their eyes are open and they when they realize who Jesus is, then the puzzles of the jigsaw fit in place. If, if you're a person who's struggling with doubts, you won't be the first one. If you're a person who, who hasn't yet got to that point of placing your confident trust in Jesus, well, we, we'd love to be able to help you and we... we do various things here at this church which enable you to ask questions and to investigate and talk to one of the leaders about that. Talk to me. We'd be glad to point you in the right direction. But let me encourage you that a week after Easter, when Thomas had been living with this uncertainty, Jesus came to him at his point of need, gave him the confidence to proclaim, you are my Lord, You are my God. And I trust that as we let the Scripture speak to us, it'll be a reminder of this great, loving, compassionate, awesome, resurrected God that we serve too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our doubts are addressed, that the Scripture doesn't assume that we're all perfect and that we don't have... Uh, the humanity or the challenges that uh, so many people in life through the ages have had. We thank you that we see pictures of real people being addressed with real needs by Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to look to you and just pray a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, show me more of yourself. We're thankful that when we do that, we can have the confidence that you will indeed answer that prayer. And so we offer it to you that we might be people who believe that you exist and that you reward those who earnestly seek you. Amen.